When I first arrived at Christ Church, this sanctuary was locked up, but for three hours on a Sunday morning, the, the congregation was near internal collapse, and uh, many of the leaders at that time, such as a small group, thought one of their principal obligations was to keep this space safe and that meant keep it safe from people. And thus it was only open for three hours. It took us a little while, a number of years, to uh, accumulate a number of folks, and eventually we were able to put the glass doors on the front of the building and open it up for 12 hours a day. And it didn't take the congregation long to realize. In fact, it became kind of instantly obvious that this space was intended to be a sanctuary for the city. You know, it's a short step off the sidewalk and you come into a rather remarkable realm that's very different, right? You go from one environment into another. And the intention behind this space was always to be a welcoming place for all people. It states that in our archival history. It's unusual for Methodists. I'm often asked, has this always been a Methodist church? And the answer is yes, although it had a different sensibility. They reached way back into the Byzantine style to speak of a time when the church was one, meaning predating even the split between the East and the West in the 11th century. So that was the intention, and they built a glittering jewel box. I call it a geode almost. You know what a geode is, that crystalline structure that looks like a rock on the outside, but on the inside it's a remarkable, dazzling display. And I've always been interested and intrigued by the design choices that were made in here, in particular, I'm, I'm intrigued by the words that are inscribed on the walls. Which words were inscribed on the walls? Because mostly, you know, you have color and marble and mosaic and symbols and iconography, certainly the iconostasis, which has some icons from the Winter Palace of Nicholas II. It's intriguing. It provides a sort of a mystical environment. But the words are interesting. There aren't many of them, are there? You probably can't make it out, but up on Jesus' lap, he's holding open a book that says, I am the light of the world. And that, by the way, is a very interesting figure in the art history that's called a Pantocrator. And in this depiction, it's, it's uh, very unusual in that it's a welcoming, uh, calming kind of Jesus as opposed to a stern, uh, commanding Jesus. Very unusual in Christian iconography. And then, of course, you have underneath it the the summary command from which we derive our mission. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbors as yourselves. And then these two bands on either side. Let not your heart be troubled here over John the Baptist. And wait on the Lord. Be of good courage above Moses. And that has always intrigued me because there was a very self-conscious or self, it was a very conscious effort at emphasizing, I think, the sanctuary nature of this space. After all, the word sanctuary is meant to be a space or a place or it, it, it um, 
points to a place or a space that offers haven. And I've always thought to myself, what a marvelous gift this is then to the city of New York for passers-by and New Yorkers who, stepping off the sidewalk, are seeking a space or a haven. And then these two scriptural passages up above on the right and the left, emphasizing the consolation that is found in deep and profound spiritual traditions. Hold that in mind. I was having lunch with a young member And I learned that he had recently emerged from a very dark place. Among other personal dilemmas, he'd been caught in an extremely difficult situation at work for a number of years, and he couldn't see a way out. He said that from time to time he came in and sat in these pews where you're sitting and focused on those lines of Scripture that I just talked about. They became his mantra. Over time, they seemed like the only prayer he had. I told him that many years ago, not long after I came to Christ Church, while this place was still locked up, I also discovered the power of those phrases. Finding myself in a dark time, roughly about the same age as my young companion was then, I discovered that if I sat up in the balcony at certain times of the day, The light coming in from that window illuminated those phrases, and I let them hold my heart. I came to depend on them. My young friend said he learned about patience and waiting during the last couple of years. He learned something important about life and faith and how they linked up. He had suffered over those years. He didn't use that word, but terrible depression, confusion about his sense of identity and purpose, his freedom and future. He felt trapped, suffocated. So he worked at waiting on the Lord. He chose to sweat it out with God, as it were, praying that his troubled heart could find courage to endure the waiting. His experience wasn't dramatic in the telling, but it was profoundly real for him. That was for sure. Afterwards, I thought to myself that over lunch, he had told me about a leg of his spiritual journey. We hadn't set it up like that. After ordering our meals, I didn't say, so tell me about your spiritual pilgrimage. But that's what he did, and I shared some of mine, and I was struck by certain similarities we were, that we shared, even though we were separated by more than 20 years, occupying very different moments in our life trajectories. Of course, the similarities extend beyond the two of us. I imagine that if I were to meet with a random sampling of anyone present, somewhere between the 
entree and coffee, the conversation swerved onto the road of your spiritual pilgrimage, I would hear something recognizable. I would hear something recognizable, something about suffering and waiting and trusting. My lunchmate told me his wait is over for the time being. His life situation clarified. He credited his waiting on God and praying. And now on this side of his dark time, he said he was learning something important about trust. He was credible and humble. I'm hopeful the learning sunk deep roots within him because my extra decades of experience suggest He'll need ready access to trust, prayer, and courage again. And then at least once or twice more after that. Because that's the nature of long journeys, isn't it? Never know what pothole might appear knocking your alignment out of whack, if not causing a terrible accident. Now, we all have our own story to tell about the map we followed thus far, all the adventures and calamities and wrong turns, dead ends and filling stations that have made their mark. Isn't it interesting that those maps have brought us all here today? And having been drawn together, didn't we all hear a short while ago what Paul wrote to his friends in Rome? Did you hear him say, oddly, we can actually boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And couldn't I weave a sermon around those powerful sentiments written 2,000 years ago, jogged by the conversation I had with you concerning your own sufferings and your own experience of waiting on the Lord. You know, it's interesting that we've changed so very little over these 2,000 years. That Paul's words are still relevant in 2017. My young friend learned something about patient endurance drawn from suffering, and I'm confident that his character edged forward as a result. He didn't say this, but there's no question he grew up some, becoming stronger, wiser, more faithful. And this emergent character gave birth to a new hopefulness about his life's trajectory. He credited God using the ancient words inscribed on our walls. In his longing for courage from a source beyond himself, he was met halfway with hope. Now, Paul also ascribed his hope to God, specifically in the pilgrimage of Jesus, who was the prototype for tracking through suffering. Jesus revealed the new life that awaits those who wait on the Lord. That's why he is the light of the world. That's the rhythm of faith that we profess in here. This same hopefulness caused Paul to write in just a few paragraphs forward that, quote, all things work together for good for those who love God. Now, he did not say that all things were good, but that out of all manner of things, good can come for the one who is turned Godward. That happened for my friend. 
in a sense, that was his testimony, although he never used those words. Now, sometimes we use the word character to mean a person of good repute. But as we all know, one's character could be good or bad, strong or weak. Paul uses it in the positive sense, that hopeful perseverance in suffering produces qualities of integrity and compassion and depth. We become better, larger persons formed in the image of the one in whom we have hope. Just as our bodies are formed by what we put into our mouths, our character is formed by what we put into our hearts and minds and souls, what we deeply yearn to emulate. That's pretty basic, right? But now here's where this whole pilgrimage thing gets really interesting. When we turn our eyes Godward in the midst of suffering, learning how to endure and persevere in hope, we inevitably begin to take on the qualities of the one who offers the aid. In our gospel lesson that you heard Neil and Carla read, there's that wonderful moment that comes after Jesus has spoken with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. John, John writes, Just then his disciples came, and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. Now they're astonished because Jesus is breaking the strict conventions of his day. For one thing, the woman is a Samaritan. The Jews despised Samaritans. They were unclean, heathen, the dreaded other. For another thing, this Samaritan is a woman whose subservient gender role was well established in this ancient culture. No self-respecting rabbi would have addressed a woman directly. And for a final insult to propriety, this Samaritan woman had a notorious lifestyle. Three strikes, you're out. Why does Jesus break all of these conventions? Because of his compassion for her. Or we might say, his love for her. He broke the rules in order to love her. Now imagine you're one of the disciples and this is your teacher, your mentor. Your worldview is this big. And his worldview is this big. Much larger than you had ever conceived. Trying to grasp that, take it in, causes a different kind of suffering. Doesn't it? It's the suffering endured by groaning into a larger version of yourself. 
a bigger version. A bigger version. We might call it growing pains, but excruciating nonetheless. You mean, Jesus, I'm supposed to love people I've been taught to despise? Is that what you mean? Am I, I'm supposed to do that? The disciples, you see, had to learn to break the rules in order to love like Jesus. Rules that seemed as natural as the rising of the sun. Rules that shaped the contours of their culture and kept it small and cramped. These rules restricted the range of God's grace. Rules the disciples imbibed in their mother's milk. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now you can sense how tough it was back in the day to grow into the sort of character Jesus emulated. You can see how breaking those rules would upset many people. Especially those who were most invested, most invested in the rules. And you can further sense how breaking these rules would loop back on the disciples, creating another sort of suffering caused by one's enlarging character that put them at odds with their own culture. Do you see it? It put them at odds with their own culture, maybe even their own families. That's the pilgrimage Jesus modeled for us. There are many applications, friends. In our own nation, the matter of racism falls into this category, doesn't it? Many of us grew up in racist households, right? That's just a fact. Many of us have struggled about this in our own lives and in our own families. We know how the rules are meant to work, how silence is meant to be kept. I'm thinking of Christians who saved Jews during the Holocaust. Precious few of them, really, given a Christian nation. But you also sense the suffering that is begged by taking Jesus at his word and living fully into the life that that he has modeled for us, you see? 
So now we begin to understand that this character we're mapping in our life's pilgrimage isn't only about our own relative comfort while enduring personal dilemmas, although it is surely at least that. I don't discount that at all. And I hope to God that many people do indeed walk through these doors and find the words inscribed on our walls as life-giving and life-sustaining for them in their moment of need. But taking it further, we actually discover that this pilgrimage is about transformation. First our own, and then the world's. That's a real agenda that's worth something. I mean, that's really, that's really worth a life's desiring, I think. Maybe it sounds grandiose, I don't know. But there's no denying the truth of it. That's the size of the grace we attempt to grasp in here and the size of the grace that inflated our own lungs with breath to begin with 